0: Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. My guests today are David Weaver and Cleve Wilhoyt. They are emeriti professors at the Indiana University Media School with distinguished careers in journalism and in the study of journalists. Cleve Wilhoyt was the first graduate of the Ph.D. program in mass communication research at the University of North Carolina in 1967, and he started at IU that same year and taught until 2004. David Weaver has been connected with IU nearly all of his academic life. Toward the beginning, he was even one of Cleve's students. Weaver earned his bachelor's and master's degrees in journalism from Indiana University in the 1960s then got his PhD from the University of North Carolina in 1974. Then he joined the IU faculty that same year, where he served until 2011. Together, Weaver and Wilhoyt conducted extensive research for almost 50 years, and about once every decade, they released their findings in volumes of the American Journalist series. Weaver, Wilhoyt, and another IU alum, Lars Wilnot, recently received an award from the Society of Professional Journalists for their latest book, the American Journalist in the Digital Age. It's based on interviews with nearly 1,100 US journalists and it documents the many changes they've seen in the past decade. David Weaver and Cleve Wilhoyt joined me in the WFIU studios. David Weaver, Cleve Wilhoyt, welcome to Profiles. Let's go back to the beginning, maybe not the beginning, but the beginning of your collaboration. It's 1968. And Cleve, you're teaching a class here at IU on public opinion, and in walks undergraduate student David Weaver. Do you remember your first meeting? Actually, it was the
1: fall of uh, 1967 when Cleve first arrived here, and I think the public opinion class I took was in the fall of 67. I was a senior in 67, 68, and um, I remember this uh, young New professor from North Carolina, who came in and had us reading all kinds of uh, social science uh, studies and literature and things that I had never encountered before. so i was uh, I was really interested in that material. and that's what started my thinking about graduate school.
0: And do you, Cleve, remember your first impressions you had of this student of yours, David?
2: David is probably the luckiest day of my professional career when he entered my classroom. And then, of course, we began to work together on research as soon as he began graduate school. And as I often say, I've been following him ever since.
0: (laughs) Now, let's Pick apart a little bit that moment. You'd mentioned, David, that when you arrived, you were really, really excited by some of the things that Cleve were talking about. What were some of those things? And one of the things I'm very fascinated by is where study of journalism, where these social sciences were at that moment when this corner was turned. that You both started turning together in your collaboration. So what was it like when you were coming into the situation and how did it change as a result of attending that class?
1: Well, I had heard of public opinion polls and uh, had seen some reporting of them, but I didn't know anything about the methodology of sampling or of uh calculating sampling error or how you generalize from a sample to a larger population. So all of that was new to me, but I I found it really interesting. So we were reading articles from political science and sociology by people who had done public opinion polling, and we were reading articles about how polls were reported and what was wrong or right with the reporting of polls. And all of that material just was really interesting,
0: I thought. It seems to me that some of this is about being able to know things that you didn't think you could know about a given population, about political or societal leaning. And was that the kind of thing that activated you in this work, finding out, oh, my goodness, if we apply some of these principles, there's stuff we could know that I did not think we could know. Right, right.
1: I think that's, that was really attractive to me. I've always been more interested in generalizations, I guess, than in particulars. And in journalism, there's often a focus on particular people and events. And uh, public opinion polling is a way to get beyond the anecdotes and to get data on what people are generally thinking. And, of course, in elections, that's really important if you want to understand them or predict them you need to get beyond the anecdotes and uh, have some evidence of what a larger population is thinking.
0: This seems to me to be one of those things that we could pick any point in the half century of work and research that you have contributed to this field and talk about the ramifications, polling specifically. Today is no different, I suppose, that you hear about polls, about good ones, bad ones, reliable ones, unreliable ones, the aggregation of polls in things like Nate Silver's website. If you could sit down someone from the general populace and say, okay, here's what you need to know about polls. These are the things you need to watch out for. How might that conversation go?
2: Well, it went uh, ultimately with Dave and me to one of the first books about polls and journalism. Dave was co-author with me on a book that the American Newspaper Publishers Association as a result of some committees, research committees. I was on with them in the middle 70s and
0: uh, early 80s. So this is the Newsroom Um, Guide to Polls and Surveys, yeah.
2: Dave and I did that book that later was republished by the Indiana University Press in which, you know, we talked about how journalists could understand such things as random sampling problems with polling questions and how to generalize from them, but uh, more important, the weaknesses, too, of polling, which, of course while the method is much more sophisticated now than perhaps it was when Dave and I were working together then, a lot of it still hinges on the quality of that sample and the quality of those questions.
0: Well, what are some examples of people getting that really wrong, uh, either from recent times or going all the way back to when you were collaborating on that book? An example of something you're talking about where you want to make sure that the sample size yields a trustworthy, actionable result?
1: Well, I think uh, many samples are not true random samples. And so uh, it's uh, dangerous to generalize from those kinds of samples, convenient samples where you just you know interview people who are nearby or willing to talk to you. That's one problem with a lot of polls, is they're not based on true random samples. They're based on uh, who's convenient or uh, who will volunteer. And another problem with them is question wording. That's a big problem. I mean, you may have a random sample that is representative of a larger population, but if the questions are skewed or loaded in some way, then,
0: you know, what can you conclude from the answers? So these are some things that you were already addressing back with this book that you were writing in the 70s that was republished in the 90s, differentiating between that, between polling and some of its inherent pitfalls, and the research that the two of you did. Because we're talking about a half century worth of responses to surveys from, in the case of the latest volume of the American Journalist series, almost 1,100 journalists, Mm you two are uniquely qualified. You had boots on the ground for that entire time, how the methodology of gathering this data changed. So let's start once again with 1967 into 1968. And you set about to poll a whole bunch of journalists and ask a very wide, broadly based swath of questions. So What do you remember about some of the first conversations the two of you had about that process and getting it going?
2: David, before he came into my class, had great experience on the Indiana Daily Student, then later would have much more journalism experience than I had as a broadcast reporter, as a high school kid, um, and a, a disc jockey as well. And we had that interest together. He had experienced some of the difficulties of reporting really difficult things. For example, the Ku Klux Klan in Indiana is a wonderful anecdote that we can't go in here into here. But uh, he had a deep appreciation of the complexities of of journalism that matched my fascination with it as well. Although I was primarily a researcher uh, and had primarily research training, our interest sort of coalesced on this uh, this fascination with who are journalists and uh, what are their values? What goes into their mental image of what they're doing? And that was probably the origin of our beginning to work together on that part of our research lives. There's much more than just about journalists, but our primary focus over together over the last almost half century has been that. And as typical of our personalities, my ideas about uh, getting into the study of journalists were far more complex than practical. <laughs> and I uh, remember proposing to Dave, oh, we're going to do, uh, do this 15-site study of participant observation, follow journalists around, and then maybe combine that with polling data and uh, just think of the richness of the data we'll have. Well, of course, that's true. If you have that kind of data, it is rich. David was far more practical and said, wait a minute, we can't get enough support for that to carry it on. A far more reasonable approach would be to do follow-up work that had been done during the Pentagon Papers era in 71 random sampling, sophisticated sociological work. So David's idea was, let's follow that. It was a stroke of genius, and that's what we did. And therefore, we have this important historical sweep of studies that is unique. Well, not completely. There are other examples. But it's unique enough to be significant for that reason alone.
0: Well, you haven't written a volume in the American Journalist series yet that hasn't won an award, if I'm not mistaken. So it's also highly respected and referenced greatly here and abroad so was that kind of how you pictured it at the time, David, that Cleve was reaching for the statistical stars and you kind of had to bring him down to Earth a little bit? or uh, was that's, that's been the case in almost everything we've done. <laughs> <laughs> Dave says, wait a minute, let's make it real here.
2: <laughs>
1: well, I, I guess I am fairly pragmatic. Uh, but um, I, I remember thinking to myself that that. A lot of the research in mass communication up, up to that point, up to the early 70s, was, was about the audiences. It was about the uses of media and the effects of media on audiences. And there wasn't that much about the people who create the messages. And so I was, I was interested in finding out more about them. I had, having worked as a journalist, I was interested in whether my experiences were typical or atypical So I happened on this study from John Johnstone at the University of Illinois Chicago and his colleagues. They did the first big national survey of journalists in the US and I thought, well, you know, that's the kind of study that should be replicated at least every 10 years so we can get trend data. We can see what the trends are. One of the challenges of that study was sampling there is no complete list of journalists in the U.S. Journalists are now required to register. Uh, therefore, uh, the sampling has to be done in at least a couple stages. You have to sample the news media first, news media outlets, ra- daily, weekly newspapers, radio, TV, wire services, and now, of course, uh, Internet sites. And then you have to uh, draw random samples from those different randomly sampled news organizations so that was a challenge that took a lot of time to compile all those lists of news organizations and then once you have the list and you draw the sample from that list then you have to get the list of journalists working for those different news organizations that's a real challenge Uh, but it's necessary to get a representative sample of all journalists in the U.S.
2: to do that and then, of course, they're extremely busy people I mean that's that's obvious and uh, Dave had the uh, nose to the grindstone approach that could constantly figure out a way to get these find these people, find the names, and then get them to cooperate and Of course, it was difficult then it's much harder now. Yes. And the complexity is, oh, much bigger now in trying to find out, okay, how do we get this journalist to respond?
0: What all accounts for that difference or how much harder it is now? So many more
1: news outlets, especially with the internet, so many more sites, But also with cable television as well. I mean, you have so many shows now on cable television that purport to be news shows. So many more people who you might consider to be journalists. You know, the media landscape is is much more complex now than it was back in the 70s.
2: And there's another factor, I think, Aaron, and that is the public's perception of journalists are they all liberal, or are they all rich or poor? What are, are, who are they, and uh, how can we gotcha on what they're doing? There, there is so much criticism that journalists, I think, are somewhat more leery now of working with even academic researchers to disclose, even though granted anonymity, mm to disclose some of their attitudes about news gathering. We're in the smartphone era of social media where they are battered constantly for just a minor word choice. So I think they are a little more reticent to cooperate than they were in the old days.
1: Oh, I think that's true. I mean, we used to get a very high completion rates from our samples, 70, 80 percent completion. Uh, and now, uh, in the latest study, I think it's about 35, but it's about one-third. Which, but, is, which still, is great. Which though. is still good. Which is good. I mean, well, a lot of pollsters now are getting, you know, 10 percent uh, completion rates.
2: Uh, so, it is, it is more difficult. And then, of course, the key is randomness. The total response rate is not as important as, okay, we've got Uh, We have some people who would not cooperate, but to what extent is this pool of people we have random in the sense that we're trying to gather it?
0: I, I have to say I find it a little bit disheartening and surprising to find that there is this reluctance to participate, especially when your work represents an opportunity for journalists to define themselves, to remove themselves from the yoke, if you will, of an external definition. And for that, I want to go back to this study by John Johnstone and his colleagues from 1971, because I think one of the things that came to light in that study is this tension that they described between two philosophical ideals of journalism two different camps if you like the participant whole truth and the neutral nothing but the truth reporting those two different types now granted this was partially i think a dividend of covering the vietnam war but i was wondering if you could both tease that idea out a little bit flesh that out so that it's more thoroughly understood And to talk about whether or not you believe journalists still see themselves in one of those two camps or whether it's a bit of both and how that might have changed over the intervening decades. Participant whole truth and neutral nothing but the truth reporting. What is that all about? Could we grapple
2: with the first part of your comments? And that is uh, why do uh, journalists not cooperate as much as they did sort of in the old days? And a part of it relates To one of our findings, I think, and uh, I believe the data show, they are far busier now (laughs) than they were in the very, very tough Vietnam era, uh, where there were all those tensions. I mean, they're having they they are asked. Uh, to now do v- video and audio and, uh, you know, be constantly uh, tweeting. and, and so, so part of it is they're busier people.
0: Scarcely time to contemplate uh, what kind of journalist they are. Yeah.
2: Most of them, though, and I think the awards the book has been given verify this. The awards the book have been given have been from the Society of Professional Journalists. And, you know, that is very, very uh, comforting to us to think that tough journalists who are hard to crack for interviews ultimately appreciate the work and have done so for all four volumes. That That's a great thing. We're really proud of that. I mean, another
1: reason that journalists may be more reluctant now to, to cooperate has to do with... Um, The cutbacks in journalism, the scarcity of jobs, you know, they worry more than they used to about whether their answers to some of our questions about political leaning or about what roles they should be playing or or about uh, the ethics of reporting, they worry a bit about whether or not these answers will get back to their bosses. Uh, So there is that element as well. And our findings show that, you know, in terms of perceived autonomy or freedom, journalists uh, think they have less of it now than they used to in the 70s and 80s. So that's, that's another element. But this, uh, the idea of the roles of journalists, uh, of whether or not they are, see themselves as participants or just neutral disseminators, uh, we have studied that now. Since the seventies and eighties, and um, the role of neutral disseminator is has declined in perceived importance over time, and the role of uh, being an, an interpreter or, or an analyst has has increased, analyzing complex problems, also being a watchdog of government and business. Uh, that that role has increased over time, and I think the. Uh, the cable news uh, shows uh, particularly uh, really uh, uh, many of them are it's questionable just how journalistic many of them are there's a lot of uh, of open expression of opinions uh, that was not the case with traditional
2: journalism and yeah. that relates to audience perception because uh, we don't need to name cable networks here but They all have legitimate journalists who would fit our definition and could be in our sample. Their image in the minds of the audience, though, is buried by the talking heads who are mouthing, you know, the pundits who are mouthing ideas about the world, may be valid, may not be. And so the image of the journalists on the part of the public is somewhat affected by—it's a minority, uh, but they're affected by that reality. Of the journalists are a very, very small village in a kind of big city of a, of a cable outlet. But on Dave's point about—and your question on neutral disseminator and interpretive uh, participant. Even those data John Stone gathered showed there was far more overlap. You could not say as definitively as I think they did. There are these separate categories. You had a lot of young people in the newsroom, and and that would just burgeon over the uh, 40, 50 years we've studied journalism, who were raised on the underground press and had sympathy for that. But even they understood the importance of some neutrality in evaluating the evidence. So what we found in our first study in the early 80s was there is a different way of looking at it. And we called it, uh, you know, watchdog investigative uh, and com- we found that was a better description than neutral or participant.:
0: Do you think there's some overlap between the rise of punditry and the rise of the priority for analysis? Because one, of, I, I, I'm being probably a bit too reductive about it, but I think of one of them being kind of a light side thing and one being kind of a dark side thing, where it seems to me that it's good that there is an increased emphasis on analyzing complex problems yes. uh, in, in the mind of journalists as they apprehend their own role. But would the pundits say that that's what they're doing? I guess it's kind of a devil's advocate question. Or do you think that they're unrelated?
1: Well, as Cleve said... Uh a lot of these roles do overlap, and it does depend on uh, what they're reporting on. Uh, for example, I mean, if you're writing, uh, if you're writing a, a factual news story about an accident that occurred, well, you're probably in the role of neutral disseminator. If you're writing a, uh, a story about uh, the implications of some government policy, then you're more in the role of an analyzer or an interpreter. I don't know whether the pundits, some of the pundits, uh, I would guess they consider themselves to be analyzers and interpreters, but the line between uh, what was supposed to be straight reporting and editorializing, that line has become so blurred, especially
2: in television. More so with the cable. Right.
0: Do you lay that at the feet of the rise of the 24-hour news cycle, the idea that you have to fill time. and I think that is definitely a factor, definitely a factor.
2: On the point about analyzing claims, in 71, there was, uh, of course, fairly strong support for that. And what is interesting, we found the two are linked. Watchdog and analysis are so highly correlated that you can consider that a role. And I want to emphasize Dave's point. That doesn't mean they reject the other roles. It just means that if they had their druthers, they'd probably enjoy doing stories more like that, but they still see a role for just the straight information function. And so I think Dave makes the key point. It, It depends on what they're reporting on. The opinion function has always been strong in journalism. Editorial pages and newspapers likely were stronger when we first began our work than they are now. So the opinion function has always been there, but as Dave suggests, there has been an assumed wall between opinion and news that tends to get broken down, at least in the audience's image of what's going on in the cable news outlets.
0: You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guests are Cleve Wilhoyt and David Weaver, professors emeriti of the IU School of Journalism. One of the challenges about talking to the two of you on this and many other topics is that you might be altogether too responsible, which is probably hard to get you to be irresponsible enough to venture some of your opinions about this data, because you have been so responsible in collecting it and presenting it. Another way of putting that is that over all of this time, uh, all of the time covered by the American Journalist volumes, I imagine there were times at every step of the way when there were findings that you were surprised by. So if I can dare, I want to see if I can press the two of you a little bit on some of the findings from the most recent volume, The American Journalist in the Digital Age, some of the findings that that you were personally surprised by, and we can walk through any of them, but are there any that, that come to mind where you thought, gosh, that... I wouldn't have predicted that, especially since you have been devoted to this body of research for such a long period of time. You know the long game, perhaps, as no one else does. Mm. So is there anything that surprised you?
1: Well, one thing that surprised me was the drop in the, uh, just the number of journalists in the country from our first study of this new century, which was done in 2002... And this study, which was done in 2013, there was a dramatic drop in the number of full-time journalists in this country. That that was surprising to me, mostly from newspapers. Um, and also alarming, I think. I mean, the high point in the number of journalists was the early 80s, I believe, at about 122,000. And now we're down to 80, 83. 5,000?
2: Probably fewer no, uh, since we did our study.
1: And uh, so that, that was a surprise.
2: What do you think, Lee? Uh, let me return to your question about the uh, participant neutral mm-hmm. and our discussion of the analytic role. What is interesting is in 71, in the Pentagon Papers Watergate era, analytic uh, orientation was fairly high, no surprise. Then as the field began to grow and you had lots and lots of kids raised on Woodward and Bernstein of Watergate fame entering the field, our, our data suggested the analytic role actually dropped in terms of not, not hugely, but enough to call attention to itself dropped as the field got larger um, And then what is interesting is that now the analytic and the watchdog orientation and we combine those is at its peak. Now you could say it's a little more than it was during Watergate and Pentagon papers but it is at its, peak.
0: So even higher than it was during... Yes. The- yes. Okay, wow. You know,
2: three or four percentage points, mm-hmm. and, and particularly the analytic role. So those things are combined. And we think that that's a good thing. And I don't know whether... Uh, I think the audience... And some critics might be a little surprised that that's still the case.
0: I think there's a popular perception that the erroneous though it may be that the watchdog role of the the press is kind of on the wane right now, that things are getting away from them. So it's interesting and heartening to hear you say that it's the highest it's ever been. Well, of course, these, these questions about which roles are most important are
1: questions about what journalists think they should be doing not necessarily what they are doing. And so we have to keep that in mind. The actual practice of being a watchdog may be on the decline, although there's plenty of watchdog reporting going on right now about our president and his problems. So I, I think it's still alive and well in some news organizations.
2: Yes, I think David's entirely right about that that. Uh, and we, we, we can just look at yesterday's news or if we had a smartphone, uh, you know, tune in right now and you'll see lots of watchdog analytic reporting. And I think that one academic perception, which was reflected in your recent Profiles interview with Sophia McLennan on humor, uh, a really fascinating show about the importance of John Oliver and company, and uh, you know, really interesting analysis. But her main assumption is that watchdog analytic is she almost uses the word gone, <laughs> and uh, we don't think that's the case. No. And if you look around, I think we're we're supported in that. But certainly in our data, it has never been higher
0: this is possibly and hopefully the most impudent question that i will ask along these lines but uh, do you think that there's any danger that's inherent to this survey data in terms of the ideal versus the the factual the the, the theory versus the practice you, we mentioned the example of the watchdog whether according to what they're actually doing it may indeed be waning but in terms of what they think is important it's never been more important is this analogous to you know someone in their house saying it's really really important to clean the floors because their floors are really filthy and they haven't gotten around to cleaning it is there that danger that's inherent to to this work
1: well i think so to some extent but there's some evidence now uh, just recently there's a there's a book that's been published just this last year about uh, journalistic role performance that tries to correlate what journalists say about their roles with what they actually do, with their actual reporting. And there is a correlation. I mean, it varies. It depends on the circumstances. It depends on how free journalists are and how well they're supported by their news organizations. But there is a correlation. So I I think these role orientations are not just pie in the sky. I think they're not just totally theoretical. I think they have some link to uh, what journalists actually do.
2: I think Dave is entirely right about that. However, the critics likely will say that about our book. And it isn't quite like, oh, my floors need to be clean, uh, but I don't do them. But journalism is such a complex business. And it's gotten so much more complex with the rise of sort of smartphone criticism, social media criticism. It it is a very difficult world, much more difficult, as I said earlier, than in 71. But it seems to me you look around, uh, particularly at national media, and uh, the watchdog analytic is overwhelming. And even right down to more local state newspapers like the Indianapolis Star, which of course many in our audience will know that Maria Kwiatkowski and uh, the Indy Star investigative team um, broke the investigative story about Dr. Nasser at Michigan State. And the gymnastics atrocity that went on for years and years. And what you talk about, you talk about watchdog investigative reporting. That's it. Mm -hmm. And two journalists last year, both of them uh, African-Americans, were given MacArthur grants, for work that you'd have to say is analytic and watchdog but it has to do with race. So there is a lot of it going on. Now, what we can't get a handle on is if you say, all right, let's go across the American landscape and look at smaller media. How much of what we find applies to them? Certainly in terms of values, they are there. And it's likely that there's more watchdog analytic going on there than our critics will admit. But there's probably a more important perspective, and this relates to some of the somewhat surprising findings in our book. James Fallows of The Atlantic, he's not quite our age, but he's getting up there. James Fallows was an editor... Atlantic when Dave and I published our second book and uh, James Fallows was invited to a national conference about our book uh, in the 90s and Fallows not uncritical about our work but he was impressed with our sense in that second book that journalists tended to go in to the field with a certain amount of idealism. They tended to see the field as somewhat noble. Now, they probably wouldn't use that word as easily as I do. But there was a a, a great idealism that we found then. And Fallows said, you know, I, I think that is no doubt true. Most of us, he said, go into this field with noble objectives. and Of course, we get beaten around, and reality is, is really tough. But I think one of the most surprising findings, to get back to your earlier question, from my point of view, is that even in these tough times, journalists conceive of themselves as still being driven by altruistic reasons now does that still work when you're overworked being hated by the critics and faced with choices of what to cover we think it does but our critics are probably going to say that's pollyanna Hmm. doesn't work in the real world
0: they would say it's perhaps a bit romanticized
2: Yes, I'm sure that's what the critics will say. But we just had a graduating class at Indiana University, and one of Dave and my first students, among the finest we've ever had, gave the commencement address. Paul Tash, who's chief executive of the Tampa Bay Times newspapers, he gave the address, and in it, he talked about the nobility of the profession in the midst of all of the criticism and all of the weaknesses of trying to get at truth and the fact that they're gonna make mistakes and they make lots of mistakes, but that it's this that still drives the Indie Star team to do that investigative reporting.
0: Cleve Wilhoyt. Emeritus Professor of Journalism at Indiana University. I'm Aaron Kane. Cleve Wilhoyt and his longtime colleague David Weaver are my guests on this episode of Profiles from WFIU. One of the things I find so interesting about looking at the the body of, of work, of scholarship over the last half century, is you'd know better than I, because you're both more robust scientists, but the the number of factors, the the things that have changed in each installment of the American Journalist series seems to be almost logarithmic. And if you look at this last (laughs) volume, factors you've already alluded to, things like social media, have really kicked things into high gear, it seems to me, and I'd love to hear your reactions to that. But specifically, uh, two pieces, two findings uh, from that volume, if you place them next to one another, I find particularly interesting. Uh, One being that U.S. journalists are less likely to consider reaching the widest possible audience and getting information to the public quickly as being very important. That that's less of a priority from their point of view. And yet, there are also findings that show how much they rely on social media in their work to check for breaking news, to monitor what other news organizations are doing, and how much that is increasing their workload. It seems to me that those things aren't exactly contradictory, but uh, let's just say that they complement each other in interesting ways. So I'd love to hear your reaction to that because, again, you know the big picture like perhaps no other people do. Uh, what is your impression of how much that is changing things? And uh, dare I ask whether or not you think that that is a good or a toxic change?
1: Well, I, I've observed in the past that that journalism has changed over these years more than journalists have. If you look at some of their values and some of their attitudes about their work, there's a lot of stability more stability than there is in the media landscape, I think. And so, you know, the advent of social media and their the time they have to spend keeping up with, with uh, tweets and with uh, other kinds of messages from social media, that has changed dramatically. And uh, sometimes I think that it's unfortunate that we have a declining workforce and we have these increasing demands uh, from social media to keep up and to constantly update news at uh, websites. I think that that does take time away from actual reporting and uh, it, it makes it more difficult for journalists to do what, what they think they should be doing. It also makes it more difficult to define who's a journalist and who isn't. I mean, you've got citizens now, you know, so-called citizen journalists who are contributing to news reports with their cell phones you know taking pictures or video that that end up in uh, in news reports so that also complicates the journalist's job you know trying to sort out what's uh, you know what's real and what isn't
2: you know, there there is a certain irony in all of this in that the, the social media parts of the journalists. And I agree with Dave, the field is, seems almost out of control. And journalists are somewhat like they used to be and are trying real hard to hang on to that. Right, And, th- and that's not only true about journalism. I mean, it's true of universities. It, uh, it, most of life is suffering the same thing. But on the social media part, journalists have always had a need to be closer to their audiences. And the the closer they could be, the better they could uh, psych out what would work, what was interesting, uh, and what the audience needed to know. And one of the things our data show, and it's all over the place, it's obvious, uh, journalists are now much more in touch with their audience than ever in the history of the field.
0: Now, is this just in terms of immediacy, or is it feedback?
2: Oh feedback, feedback. Uh, and uh, and immediacy too, I think. But the downside of that yes. is it introduces a kind of a frantic responsibility of getting things out faster, responding more quickly, uh, trying to uh, get their stories used in various social media, which, of course, is completely counter to the idea, reaching widest audience, getting information out to the public quickly, which have declined somewhat. But I think the point there, Aaron, is that it's not that the journalists reject those things. It's just that in their heart of hearts, if they had their druthers, they would not like to be bound with this immediacy. One of the greatest columnists of all times, Russell Baker, retired now, New York Times, said, and we used this not only in our book in the 80s, but we use it again in the latest book, He said, you know, to be a good journalist, you have to have an almost idiot zeal for the importance of the present moment. Now, in a sense, we're all in that trap now with cell phones. So, you know, this is not a new thing. Well, it's magnified. Yeah. (laughs) But I think Dave has hit on a central point, and that is the field is changing so rapidly. There's so much going on, and journalists are still hanging on to the nobility of the profession. And I'm sure it's becoming harder and harder to do. Well, another thing
1: that all the uh, audience feedback can sometimes result in is um, it, can, it can result in stories that journalists may not consider to be very important uh, rising to the top of the heap because of audience metrics, you know, because of looking at how many clicks are, there are on different stories. And and it really brings into the four the conflict between giving people the information they need to know and giving them what they might find to be most interesting. You know, a story about uh, some pet animal may rise to the top of the news agenda because it uh, attracts so many clicks. But that's not necessarily what people need to know in a democracy. And so there's that kind of conflict, too. And, uh, And it's always been there it's been there but it's now but now now it's it's worse it's it's so much uh i mean there's there there are these measures these of how many people are clicking on these stories that didn't used to exist what you used to have for feedback were letters to the editor and telephone calls you know and so the feedback was a lot more uh sporadic and uh you know it wasn't uh nearly as uh, quantified as it is now.
0: It may have always been there, but I do not imagine that a newspaper 50 years ago could have conceived of the concept of all the news that's fit to click on.
2: (laughs) Yes, and and one of the MacArthur winners last year, Hannah Jones is her last name, spoke at the University of North Carolina journalism graduation last year, and Dave and I are both alumni of of, uh, the University of North Carolina, so naturally we picked up on that. And uh, Hannah Jones told the students, we don't do this for the tweets and the clicks. We do this because we have a sense of justice. Now, I think journalists want to believe that, mm-hmm. but Dave's characterization of how the field is almost out of control uh, it makes it hard for them to do that. But uh, I, you can look around, and uh, there's, there's a lot of journalism that still shows that idealism
0: listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guests are Cleve Wilhoyt and David Weaver, Professors emeriti of the IU School of Journalism. I'm going to try again to, to nudge you into slightly dangerous territory, which is the, the territory of the prognosticator because uh, even people with crystal balls generally don't have the wealth of data to look back upon to inform their their guesses and their predictions. But on this topic of the field kind of spiraling out of control, and yet journalists in their self-perception and to a large extent in their action, not changing all that much, or at least not changing yeah. as much as you'd think, given this or the onslaught of change of the last decade, Let's talk about the next one. Let's talk about the next decade, if if it's not too irresponsible to do so. Where do you see that going? Uh, because I don't think there's anyone better qualified to guess. You may not want to because <laughs> it's, it's about the data, but uh, and not about supposition or 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 speculation. But what do you think? Do you um do you think ten years further down the road, something will have nudged something else in the other direction, or, or put another way, that something will have prevailed over the other, uh, the, the integrity of journalism versus the, the being shackled to ever faster news cycles and more demanding technologies.
2: On, on Dave's point about the quickly changing field and related to your earlier question, I think we should uh, point out, as we do in the book, this also gives the journalist enormous creative power the new video possibilities. I mean, who would have imagined uh, five years ago, six years ago, the New York Times having on a Sunday morning a three uh, you know, a, a virtual reality goggles uh, you know, the, with your newspaper? I mean, so the creative power of all of this may not offset all of the problems we talked about, but it should not be underestimated either. The critics are going to say the journalists have changed more than Will Knott, Weaver, and Will Hoyt have found. I don't know how we answer that, except that, you know, we've we've looked at anecdotal things and talked to a lot of journalists since then. And uh, I, I think if it had been there, we would have picked it up.
1: Well, I don't know what what the next decade is going to <laughs> is going to bring, but I I think there's always going to be a need uh for uh, factual reporting and uh for people to find out what's really going on behind the scenes in government, for example. So I don't think that's going to change uh despite all the changes in the media landscape. And um as Cleve said, I, I, I mean, some some of these developments are, you know, are, are do make uh, reporting actually easier in some ways, but um, well, I think that there's just going to be a need for uh, you know for factual reporting, and uh, I've I've often thought that that journalism is a bit like research. I mean, you're trying you're trying to find out what is true and what isn't. It's really uh, the mission of the university. I think Paul Tash pointed that out at commencement. That you know the the motto of this university is light and truth, and that that's that could very well be the model of journal uh, the model of of journalism. You know the best journalists are trying to find out what's true and what isn't, and um, uh, there's always going to be a need for that. And I don't think that's going to go away, despite all the technological and economic changes.
2: You can find critics and researchers even who are saying the, you know, the entire system is crashing before our very eyes, the system on which journalism is based, you know, because of the smartphone era. If, if we take the historical sweep uh, the more important thing is the people And what is happening now right here at Indiana University is young, smart undergraduates somewhat like the crowd that came into journalism after the Watergate period are going into journalism because of the idealism that they're going to be able to make a change. And that journalism is, as Dave said, a little bit like research in that you're constantly after truth. You never get it, but you're searching for it. Journalists certainly never quite get it. And and so part of the answer to your question is the idealism is being reborn. And that is, uh, I think, an important indicator of where journalism is going to be 10 years from now. Now, of course, there are complicated economic complexities, financial complexities uh, that cloud the whole picture, and we could do another hour on that.
0: Well, Cleve, Wilhoyt, David Weaver, it's been a pleasure speaking to you both about this. Thank you for your work, and thank you so much for joining me today on Profiles.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting us. It's Great to be able to talk about our work here.
0: I've been speaking with David Weaver and Cleve Wilhoyt, professors emeriti of the IU School of Journalism and recent recipients of the Sigma Delta Chi Award for Research in Journalism from the Society of Professional Journalists. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening.
2: Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Pascash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles.